bringing you the stories behind the standards. This is the BSI Education Podcast with Matthew Childs and Alan Sellers. Today's episode is on human capital standards. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs and I am with Alan Sellers. Hello, Alan. How are you? Hi, Matthew. I'm good, thank you. How about yourself? (laughs) Well, normally at this point I say, yeah, I'm good. But I think actually, I think I'll just go as far as fine today. <laughs> so oh, obviously, fine. Uh, yeah, only, only fine. Obviously, we are. In fact, I, I've no idea how many days we are into into lockdown 3.0. I've literally lost track. So with with lockdown, with it pretty much uh, persisting down outside with rain and uh, <laughs> trying to homeschool two primary school children, I think I will just go as far as fine. How about you? How, how's the homeschooling thing going? Well, I'd rather not talk about it, if I'm honest, Matthew. I think uh, three primary school children to, to homeschool is, is proving challenging and finding a new deep respect for teachers, I have to say. <laughs> yes. Let's move swiftly on then. Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. Today's story is all about human capital standards. Now, An organization's people are obviously its greatest asset, but it's also often its greatest expense. Now, as a result, human capital management, or HCM, has become the driving force behind many new business practices. Now, to talk about this, uh, our guest today is Dr. Wilson Wong. He's head of Insight and Futures at CIPD, the Chartered Institute for Personnel and Development. But before we get to that... We've had some great feedback uh, to our new feature, Alan. The Standards Desk of News has become a great hit. Oh, I better, better, better dust off the uh, notes and, and deliver another one. <laughs> Over to you, Alan, for your Standards Desk of News. The headlines this week, new standard launch for community face coverings, and a new definition agreed for plant-based foods. Now, as we know, face coverings have become part of everyday life. Wallet, keys, face covering, as we fight the spread of COVID-19. But with so many face coverings out there, how do we know if they all perform in the way they should? Well, here in the UK, we now have BSI Flex 5555, Community Face Coverings. This new standard is designed to help UK manufacturers, testing houses, retailers and consumers to ensure single-use and reusable face coverings are safe and fit for purpose. BSI Flex? Yes, that's right, Flex. New type of standard developed using repeated cycles of iteration. Stay tuned though, we'll be covering BSI Flex in a future episode of the podcast. It's important to point out, though, that BSI Flex 5555 does not cover PPE or medical face coverings, nor does it address DIY or transparent face coverings. Version 1 of the standard is now available for public comment via BSI's Standards Development Portal. Get commenting now and shape the way this standard develops. Alan, when you say 5555 like that, all I can think about is a... uh, Back in the 19, probably the late 70s, early 80s, on commercial radio in the Midlands, I think it was probably on Mercia FM. I don't know whether you remember Mercia FM. Oh, vaguely, and certain, yeah. 
Certainly BRMB in Birmingham. I don't think either of those exists now. No, anyway, there was, an ad- <laughs> there was an advert. There was an advert for Alan's Taxes, funnily enough, and it went, Alan's Taxes, Coventry, five, 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 five. Alan's Taxes, Coventry. No, hold on. <laughs> New dial, we drive. There you go. And all I can think of is... Alan's taxis. I wonder if oh, I'm going to have to move into the taxi business now, Matthew. <laughs> I wonder if they still exist. Do the next news <laughs> item. I'll find out if they still exist. Yeah, go on. Uh, well, it's Veganuary. Are you taking part, Matthew? I am. I've uh, I've been a vegan for the last ooh, two and a half years now. Yeah, so I'll be taking part. Well, to be honest, it's not something that's been on our radar here. But towards the end of last year, we did try out variety of plant-based meat alternatives with varying levels of success with the kids. It's big business now too. The global meat substitute sector is worth over 20 billion a year and is set to grow to 23.2 billion by 2024, according to market research company Euromonitor. But just what does plant-based food mean? Well, the recently published standard PAS224 answers just that question. PAS 224 is the first standard to establish clear and simple criteria to define what is meant by 100% plant-based food. It should help to ensure a level playing field and fair practices in communication and labelling. The standard launches just as many consumers are reducing their consumption of animal-derived foods because of concerns about the negative effects on their health and the environment. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling quite peckish now. And that's the Standards Desk of News for this week. Back to you, Matthew. Thank you, Alan. And just, yeah, I just just did a bit of a check here. Alan's Taxes has been moving the people of Coventry since 1938. Wow. Coventry's oldest taxi firm. So there you go. So Alan's Taxes and that bit, little bit of copywriting has outlived uh, lots of commercial radio stations in the <laughs> West Midlands. <laughs> Thank you for the news, uh, Alan. And a reminder that you can find links for both of those stories in the episode notes. Here's me interrupting things with a quick reminder that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. This link and others on the themes raised in this episode can be found in the episode notes. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our guest today is Dr. Wilson Wong, Head of Insight and Features at CIPD, the Chartered Institute for Personnel and Development. Now, Wilson's career has spanned academia, corporate finance and national ICT development policy. Uh, But we're speaking to him today because he is also independent chair of the BSI Human Capital Standards Committee or HCS1. He's also deputy chair of the BSI Knowledge Management Standards Committee, or KMS1, and he represents the UK on ISO TC260, which deals with HR standards. Uh, Wilson is also co-editor of Human Capital Management Standards, a complete guide, which was published in 2019, and is a member of advisory boards, uh, Nottingham Business School, and the Work and Equality Institute. 
we discuss with Wilson the importance of human capital standards from Bangor to Bangalore. So welcome to the podcast, Wilson Wong. Hello, Wilson. How are you? Hi, Matthew. I'm very well. And you? I'm not too bad, Wilson. Now, I introduced you there as the head of futures at CIPD. Now, head of futures, that sounds like an amazing job title. Tell us about that. Okay, so part of my role is to do a little bit of horizon scanning of some of the trends that's happening in the um, in the economy and social trends as well, and to try to extrapolate some of these trends and um, indicators as to how possible work futures can evolve. So, for example, you know, I'm currently reading a book on demographic reversals. And how, for example, we may enter a period of um, inflation again, because we've not had an inflationary um, pressure for a long, long time. Um, and the argument in this, uh, in, by this academic is that we had a deflationary push because of China and its entry into the World Trade Organization, huge labor uh, um, in, uh, supply into the marketplace, and a giant uh, um, uh, industrial complex to to do the manufacturing for us cheaply, those things are fading away. So it's it's about looking around to see what signals are coming through. Some quiet ones as well. Some social changes like what's happening on Capitol Hill, and what that means for organisations and the future of work. Sounds it sounds fascinating actually. And obviously we are obviously living through some very difficult times at the moment. So people are looking to the future, looking hopefully to the future. So, uh, yeah, we're all sort of trying to crystal ball gaze and see, and see, you know, hopefully some more positive times that are coming. Now, I introduced you, I also introduced you as uh, working for, obviously, for CIPD, the Chartered Institute for Personnel and Development. Now, some listeners may not be aware, aware of CIPD, so you tell us a bit more about, about what CIP does. So the CIPD, the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, is a professional body that looks after people management. So HR, learning and development, organizational development professionals. And it's been around a good long time. It's uh, over 100 years old. It started as a welfare association for workers. And now it has a fairly global reach with offices in Dublin, Dubai, Singapore, as well as in London. What what sort of um, interests you about this? I mean, because you've got futures there and, and you've got the CIPD. Um, you sound very passionate about all of that. If, if you had to summarise in a sentence what what drives you in, in that space, what, how would you describe that? I think the, the my main motivator is, is just the excitement of learning. I mean, every day I have the opportunity to read something new, to talk to someone new like yourselves, um, and really have my own assumptions and um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, opinions challenged. So I'm constantly looking for that for that stimulation, and that's really what drives me. I think that curiosity about what other people are doing, and how they're thinking and processing information, possibly the same pro- information that I'm getting but in a completely different way. Now, that is very interesting. Now, now I'm sure, Matthew, uh, it's probably my turn to say we love a standards journey. We, we like to know how you've ended up working with standards. 
and and a little bit about your role as a standards maker now. Um, so please tell us about your story. <laughs> so when I was first invited to to work with BSI, it was with the Human Resource Standards Committee at the BSI. And at that time, I was heading up a research unit looking into organizations and how they were managing their people, right? So the kind of future of leadership, that sort of thing. And uh, I, I knew very little about uh, standards in the management space. You know, of course, I knew about the kite mark and those kind of industrial standards, but this was completely new. And a couple of years after joining the committee and working actively to find out a little bit more about the TC260, the ISO Human Resource Standards Committee, I realized that this could be a very important driver of shaping the professionalization in management, in people management. So I stuck with it, learned the jargon, the rules, <laughs> read through the directives one and two, and and then realized that actually it's it's a it's a very interesting journey. It's it's about people. The, st- the creation of standards, I thought, would be technical, precise, dotting of I's, crossing of T's. But it ended up being about building a community of people who had a passion for raising standards in people management across the world, but thinking about it in slightly different ways and using different tools and different uh, frames of reference, and then for us to come together and work out how much of this is evidence-based, how much of this we still don't know, how much of it is just custom and practice, and we have sold it as somehow knowledge. Um, and, and having that process of sifting through all this and being challenged, I think has made me a far better thinker um, and far more challenging of my own assumptions about what is knowledge. So I've been in the business now, ooh, coming up to nine years in, in human capital, and more latterly joining the Knowledge Management Committee at BSI. Because as you can see, the main value now of any advanced economy is in the minds of people. And the ability to to deploy, encourage, share that knowledge is what makes for value creation in modern economies. Wilson, you mentioned that human capital, and obviously the subject of uh, this particular episode of the podcast is we are looking at human capital standards. And I suppose I have another sort of definition or question really around why why do you use the term human capital and not human resources? Is is there a difference here? Okay, um... Human capital, the origins of that term is economic, and it was first described uh, by an economist in the 60s as a person's, the sum total of a person's uh, talents. So it could be that you're looking not just at the person's ability to do accounts because he or she's an accountant, but also that he plays the piano, he coaches um uh, rugby over the weekend. He sits on the school board. He's also uh, an amateur carpenter who built his own uh, kitchen cabinets. So all of these are the capital or knowledges or skills that a person contains, which may or may not be captured within a particular job description. 
And as you, as I described earlier, when you are a modern employer in a sophisticated economy, and you say to your workforce, you want them to bring more of themselves into the workplace, really to encourage innovation and ideas and innovative solutions, you're actually asking them to bring more than just their job description competencies into the workplace. And so the committee, the BSI, was originally called uh, Human Resources Standards. And when I took over as chair, it was uh, we had a discussion and we decided to call it Human Capital in recognition of the fact that it isn't just a human resource management function. It is looking at how we deploy the people in an organization to the best of their ability in a creative way towards organizational goals without the limitations of a job description. Wilson, that that sounds fascinating. The the change in the way we think about human resources versus human capital. And I can see that that shift within the way that I manage people within my own organization, where it's it's very much a people first sort of policy that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than the human resources angle. So it's interesting hearing from you about how that's being also reflected in the the standards committees and and the way that standards are being developed in this area. Yes, and and I think one of the reasons for changing is because human capital is a term that's used also in finance and in economics. So it's a as a vocabulary that's accessible across several functions within the business um, and for them to take collective responsibility for the way that people are um, developed, managed and deployed. Mm. Now, now often um, standards are developed to try and solve some sort of issue or problem and uh, these are international standards that, that we're talking about. So I'm keen to understand what is it that they are trying to solve, if anything? You know, what are the key drivers for these standards? Okay, I think I'll draw a distinction between the slight difference between the national project and the uh, international project and uh, argue that there may be a future confluence, you know, an overlap in terms of their objectives. The national or British standards that we've developed from uh, the Human Capital Standards Committee here at BSI, we were trying to explore what it was about standards that would create um, a more progressive or better working experience for for workers in the 21st century. So we started in the UK by exploring what were the core principles of good people management and then deciding that the support for that those principles should be evidenced in things like uh, diversity inclusion, the health and well health safety and well-being of the workforce and the development, the learning and development of that workforce. So if you're able to be an employer that pays attention to these issues, 
governed by those core principles in the British standard BS 76000, you could very you could then claim to be a progressive, people-focused employer. So that was that was the project for the UK, really trying to distill at the at the root of it what would make a good working experience where people can give of themselves in a secure uh, environment where they were constantly having their human capital replenished in a sustainable manner. At the international level, ISO um, TC260, Technical Committee 260, the focus was slightly different. This was driven by a need to try to scope up what was good practice in human resource management. Given that this is uh, um, HRM is is largely a kind of industrial paradigm, you know, how do you manage lots of workers to get productivity? We wanted to explore with international partners where they thought the practice of human resource management should be going. So the standards there look more granularly at, that's not a word, is it? It looks in more detail Mm. at how um, processes around, let's say, recruitment should be done so that it is, it could be, um, it could then be uh, called a professional practice. So recruitment or um, knowledge management or workforce planning, these are very core HR uh, activities. And they wanted to set certain, certain basic standards for professionals all over the world as a, as a means of professionalizing the practice so that one, you were ethical, that you didn't damage your workforce, that you were being fair and transparent, those sort of things. Um, so there's a slight difference. However, both groups recognize the importance of treating the worker with respect and fairly. So I think there is a, a joint um, understanding as to what constitutes good practice. Um, The UK committee has articulated it expressly in the core standard BS76000. And in the international standards that they have a a standard called human governance, which is a slightly, um, slightly more dilute version of uh, what we were trying to do in the British standard. Ever wondered how standards are made? Or who gets to make them? Why standards are numbered the way they are? And who gets to choose the numbers? Or maybe you have a burning question about standards related to your job or the sector in which you work? Well, this is your chance to ask the BSI Education Podcast and we will get your questions answered. All you have to do is record your question via audio message and send it to education at bsigroup.com. We'll put the best ones to a panel of experts in a future episode, so stay tuned. So, Will, so what you're describing there, it sounds like quite a, a large cultural shift in the approach to, to human capital or, or human resources as it once was. And I'm sure that the 
um, organizations that that will be implementing these and, and looking at these and and how to put them in place will will be interested in in what the benefit is of that and I guess for me what I'm quite interested in is the view that there might be for our listeners and and what differences they they might see so that's the first thing that I'm quite interested in and and the second thing that that we've been talking about and and you've you've talked about as well is is the the challenging the discussions and and the way that ideas are developed within a technical committee and those challenges and and those debates and the issues that you face in those technical committees and how you work towards consensus is is the real heartbeat of a technical committee and that's often so difficult to describe or or illustrate from from someone that stands outside of that process. So I guess I've got two follow-up questions then really and that is you know what what have been some of the big debates around this and what as an employee of an organization that's looking to implement some of these standards what difference might I see? Okay. So I think one of the main debates that uh, that around human capital is the issue of value, and this is this is a, a question that every business will ask. For some businesses where you have labor as an input factor and it's an unskilled job, you find that cost is a as a main driver, and the and the labor is sadly disposable. You know, you you replace somebody who's not well with another person who can do the job. But in uh, advanced economies where you are dealing with ideas and um, high-level inputs like consultancy um, and advice, that doesn't quite work because the the ability to value the contribution of that person's knowledge is far less exact. You cannot um, always precisely put a price against it. So for us as a committee, that was a big that was a big debate about what value was, and uh, we wanted to to be able to demonstrate through the standards that uh, you could, at some point, uh, see some return in the standards we create. You you asked also about what what is the advantage for organizations. What I I tell people is over time what you do is an organization creates policies and procedures and uh, incentives for their workforce on a kind of ad hoc basis. You kind of add stuff to it as your organization matures, as new ideas evolve, and really there's never an opportunity to look at how all these different incentives and disincentives work together to engage or disengage your workforce and what bits of it block and what bits of it enable. So when you look at some of the standards that we've developed, it's it's an opportunity for organisation to kind of give themselves a health check. They go through the standard, which asks you the questions that you have to consider um, say in regards to a particular issue, let's say you have an issue about diversity and, and your culture is less than inclusive and you're trying to do something about it, you enter your system, your people management system by saying, okay, these are the questions we need to answer in relation to this particular issue. 
And at the end, you will find that there are some things which actually work against you in your policies and procedures and culture, and some things that are enabling it. But without this opportunity to stand back, reflect, and take a stock and do a stock take of where you are in terms of all the touch points with your people, your workforce, it's very hard for you to to uh, be able to see how the whole system works because most of the systems that organizations have have grown by accretion. So that's already the first uh, valuable use of um, these voluntary standards. The second is these standards are also increasingly coming with uh, metrics, metrics that look at inputs, metrics that looks at the quality of your processes, metrics that look at the outputs and outcomes of those processes. And that gives you uh, an ability to collect data that's relevant to your organization in a standardized, agreed way, which allows you then to compare um, the performance of a similar unit, one in, say, Bangor, Wales, and one in Bangalore, India, and to see whether there are certain drivers shaping those metrics. And like any uh, financial metric, it's subject to context and interpretation. But at least you know that the data that goes towards making up that ratio is consistent. And having several countries working together um, and agreeing on the inputs of those metrics gives you uh, an evidence base for making sometimes quite expensive investments to your business. Yeah, I, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, if you can measure something, then you can start making decisions on it. And I guess I'd never thought that something around human capital, uh, diversity and inclusion, for example, could be measured in a way. But yet there are discussions happening about just that. How 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 do you come up with a metric for that and and not only that there's the the diversity of thought that must be being brought into that discussion yes yes no it's 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 very interesting to work with you know a dozen over uh, country experts because the assumptions are often very very different and understanding those assumptions is the beginning of building that consensus. So you asked earlier about how technical committees work. They don't just gel together simply because we have expert knowledge in a particular field. It is about the building of uh, respect, relationships, but also a very acute ear as to what it is that's driving those concerns in their particular marketplace. Mm -hmm. So for example, the first time we had a conversation about metrics, um, the first thing that um, the U.S. contingent wanted to measure was cost per hire or recruitment costs or costs in general, mm. whilst the European experts were more interested in measures like engagement, well-being, uh, ability to, to deploy the workforce. Um, and there was a philosophical difference in that the Europeans, by and large, saw productivity as a byproduct 
of management practices, whilst the US contingent or North American contingent saw that productivity is the objective. That's fascinating, isn't it? Those two cultural positions coming into play there. And neither is is wrong. It's just a, a very strong philosophical bent in that in Europe, we are we are very clear about a kind of social contract that we look after each other in a particular way. Was in the American narrative, it's more individual and it's about performance. It's about the kind of winner takes all. You know, so it's a very different social cultural environment. And we have to understand that these are priorities within those markets and to find a way of working and to find a common vocabulary in order to work towards these international standards. Yeah. And, we, yeah. and so we use both industry and academic uh, experts and preferably those with international experience so they can kind of understand why there are nuances and starting points which are different. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it, I, I'm interested as well because it, it sounds like the UK on a national level are, are, are driving some of the the thinking and, and the development of, of standards in this area. And I just wondered if there was any kind of specific uh, themes that the UK is particularly passionate about or, or really wants to develop further? I think from the UK perspective, and this, again, is, is not just, um, it's not a, a view that is universal, because as you can see, even in the UK, we have labour-intensive uh, low-wage sectors, and then we have very, very high-end city consulting insurance services, you know, media services. So the way that the workforce is perceived in those sectors is very different. But from the UK perspective, from the perspective of the UK committee, what we wanted to do was to put on the table a position that workers can have a fulfilling work life if some thought is given to their welfare, well-being, needs, and development, and that they they then reciprocate with uh, engagement, ideas, and commitment to the purposes of their organization or organizations. So that that kind of um, thinking means that we are constantly challenging organizations to find a way of working with their workforce that isn't purely instrumental or exploitative. And this is something which, of course, the politicians talk a lot about, even though they, if you look at the last 20, 25 years, economic policy, certainly in the UK, hasn't been successful in creating a bigger knowledge economy to feed the the expectations of a growing number of uh, university graduates. But that said, there's no reason why jobs should not be designed um, in a way that respects the workforce and develops them to the best of their ability. And I think that's the vision for 
UK PLC that we are putting on the table. So, um, Wilson, we talked at the very beginning there about your role as, as as head of futures at CIPD, and I'm just wondering what what you see are the sort of future developments in this area of work you've talked about. You know, where do we where do we go next with uh, human capital standards and human resource standards? Um, thanks, thanks, Matthew. You know, it's thanks for kind of raising this question because it's actually the topic of of my chapter in, in the standards book. So some, I'll just give you some of the highlights from, from that uh, chapter. One of the things that, um, that uh, you see in the kind of macro environment is uh, the digitalization of information and how that information is commodified. One of the, the hot topics around users today, I mean, at this point is that WhatsApp has just notified most of the global users that they, are, they will be transferring their user data to Facebook for analysis so that they can use that data to, to create personal profiles and then to sell things to you or sell ideas to you. So there's enough, a flurry of people deciding whether they want to stay with WhatsApp as a, as a tool. So you can see that data now is a commodity and people are also part of the equation because organizations hold huge amounts of data on their people. So some organizations, for example, issue their executives with um, Fitbits, you know, um, medical devices to measure their heart rate, sleep patterns and so on. There is a question, of course, of who owns that data and what they can do with that data. So that data in some jurisdictions is used to reduce the insurance premiums for the health benefits of the senior executives. So again, you can see how people data is pretty sensitive. So I can see that that's one one area, contested area, that is, what are we doing with all this people data? Um, The second one we talked a little bit about earlier, which is about the inter-organizational working, so that uh, you find the unit of analysis of most of these human capital standards is the organization. And that has to evolve so that it helps users of these standards to begin to imagine what it is like to manage human human capital across organizations. We also find that uh, there's a, a question of inequalities. This pandemic has raised certain kinds of fissures in society. But if you look at the way people work now in the, their homes doing freelance work, the OECD study in 2018 said that 80% of the online jobs, those kind of technical jobs, little design jobs, project jobs, 80% of them were offered by OECD countries and 20% of the workers uh, and only 20% of the workers responding to these jobs came from the OECD. So there's a kind of global marketplace, perhaps a leveling down of rates because there are no borders in terms of this kind of online work. So again, in terms of maintaining uh, standards and managing people, uh, keeping it ethical, I mean, that's an area where no national government can really uh, control if you're just posting jobs for online contractors. Other things that I see happening is the dominance of big tech. So I just described um, one one issue uh, that's that's current. 
but also the dominance of organizations like Google because they set the platforms on which organizations work. And that means that standards also have to respond to how these these platforms are changing the, the nature of work itself. You know, the online working like Deliveroo where you have a human to human interface, but there are also other platforms um, like uh, TaskRabbit, where I could just hire a transcriber in, say, South Africa for a tenth the cost of a transcriber in the UK. And is that right or is that wrong? Or is it sustainable? Is that not? Um, and the other big driver is uh, um, cybersecurity because so much is digitalized, so much goes through digital channels that too is going to change the way that value is measured, destroyed, and created. And that will also shift the demands for skills and the investment by organizations. As much as traditional demographics and the movement of talent across borders. So these, I think, are some of the drivers that um, future standards setters will have to contend with, whatever their particular domains, because uh, these are macro factors which will affect the strategic choices of many organizations, um, making, say, knowledge management more important, um, making uh, surveillance of their workforce uh, more intense because of security concerns or loss of IP, um, and then the ethical considerations or the legal considerations of being able to monitor and uh, and uh, keep track of their workforce in such uh, um, in such such minutiae. So Wilson, you've raised uh, many challenges there, and there's a lot in that we've discussed that that could be really interesting to a lot of people in 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 the area that you work in. Uh, in, including cybersecurity, which which we will be doing a episode on later in the year. Um, so, where can people go to find out more? Uh, we'll put some links in the episode notes. But if if you were to point people in a particular direction, if they're interested in more, uh, what what would you say? Uh, where would you point them? Okay, so um, the committee. At British Stand- the Br- at BSI is called the Human Capital Standards Committee, and if you go to BSI and and um, get the link there, by all means contact um, our program manager who will be able to tell you a little bit more about the work that we do, and we are always looking out for for experts to join the committee to enrich the the work that we do both at national and at international level. So if you have uh, knowledge or experience in anything related to the management of people, we would love to hear from you. The other place, I suppose, for as a primer to some of the work that is already done is a book that I co-edited with Valerie Anderson and Heather Bond, called the Human Capital Management Standards, A Complete Guide. And that's probably a very easy introduction uh, to what's going on in this field and the kinds of potential 
directions that the development of standards in this area can take. Um, so Wilson, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really do appreciate your time today. So thank you, Matthew and Alan, for a very interesting conversation. And uh, I look forward to um, feedback from your reader, from your listeners. <laughs> you have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. You just heard a stripped media production.